Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis. And today we are going to be talking about the diabetic foot in the orthopedic patient. And I have a wonderful guest here today, Dr. Larry Crystal, who is a podiatrist. Um, not only is he a podiatrist, he has been a mentor of mine, a great colleague, and uh, we've worked together a lot, and really a good friend uh, who has helped me. Uh, we've been working together for 25, 26 years. Um, At least. Yes. Yeah, we have seen a numerous amount of patients um, with different orthopedic problems of the foot and ankle to include and not limited to plantar fasciitis and uh, metatarsalgia, Morton's neuroma. Achilles tendonitis, Charcot foot, um, you name it, we have seen it. Um, and, and we have a lot of experience seeing a lot of different uh, foot and ankle issues. So uh, I really want to thank you for coming uh, to be on our show today, Dr. Crystal. Thanks for the invitation, Paul. Well, anytime. Um, so, you know, what we'll do today is, is we're not going to talk a lot about, you know, scientific research and stuff like that. We're going to talk about our experience with treating different problems. We'll throw out some statistics. We have a number of different um, topics regarding the foot and ankle and the diabetic foot we'll talk about, but we're going to bring our experience to the table here um, so that uh, you can take a look at this and say, you know, it, it, you can't always follow a book. You can't always follow some sort of manuscript that says, well, you have to do this at this certain time. Da, 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 da. Research is important, but you know, our experience is going to be very important also. So I guess my, my first question I have for you is, can you give us a little history of your experience, your schooling, and, and where you've worked and, and the types of things you've seen? Well, I moved to Arista County, and we're in rural northern Maine in 1980, and uh, they hadn't had a podiatrist here for about 40 years. So when I presented here, uh, they had a numerous uh, unbelievable complications related to foot problems. And being a poor rural county, uh, we have a high rate of diabetes. So many of the patients I see or have seen over the past years have had diabetes. Uh, in some clinics, up to 80% of the patients have diabetes. So we have a lot of experience uh, in that regard. Now, I'm glad you're talking, we're going to be talking about diabetes today because I'll be the first to say I have a lot of orthopedic knowledge. I don't have a lot of diabetic knowledge. And that's why Dr. Crystal and I communicate so much together because I, I, I didn't know how to recognize it very well. I didn't really know how to manage it. So we'll be talking a little bit later in the show about, you know, the importance of the collaboration, communication, and, and talking to your provider and having good discussion and uh, the rate of you know recovery of these patients being so much better when we can do that. Definitely. I, and the knowledge in regards to diabetes has increased exponentially uh, since I opened practice in 1980. Now we have many, many uh, ways of monitoring diabe our diabetic population and they can self-monitor at home, which they couldn't do before. So they can control their diabetes or they have access to control their diabetes and we have a, a good idea of how they're doing uh, with a test, uh, which we've talked about before, called the hemoglobin A1C. And, and a lot of patients uh, don't understand uh, what the hemoglobin A1C is. 
uh, and how we use it. And I'd be happy to discuss that with you. Uh, yeah, I think and, we're going to be talking about that in, in today's episode. Yeah. So I guess as we get started here, um, can you tell us why it's so important to have a good working knowledge about diabetes when working with the foot in particular, not the hand? Uh, we know the eyes, you can lose your vision and those types of things. But why the why the foot and why is it so important? And, and what are the what are the problems with not recognizing diabetes uh, early enough? Well, the two major problems of diabetes are what we call microvascular and macrovascular disease. Macrovascular disease is uh, what kills diabetics outright, stroke and heart attack. But the microvascular disease is more insidious. And we talk about diabetics losing their kidneys, uh, losing uh, uh, their feet uh, due to poor circulation and losing their eyes due to retinopathy. With better control of uh, their diabetes, many of these problems can be uh, prevented. Okay. Um, So when a person comes into your office with a foot and ankle problem, maybe a plantar fasciitis issue or posterior tib tendinitis, metatarsalis, Morton's neuroma, and you're suspicious of diabetes, what kinds of things do you look for? Are there any physical appearances to the foot that may make you suspicious? And, I, and I'm, I'm saying I'm asking this because we're, you know, a majority of our audiences, med-level providers, PAs, FNPs, PTs, OTs, athletic trainers. And, and what is it that we should be looking for? Are there any signs that a person could be developing diabetes by just looking at their feet? Uh, Diabetic foot often presents with the following signs. Number one, look at their person's skin. If you walk in a room and the patient's skin is very dry and they have cracks in their skin, uh, you, you can become suspicious that perhaps the patient has diabetes. Look at the color of the skin. Uh, is the skin very shiny? They may have vascular disease. Is there no hair distribution? They may have vascular disease. Uh, are the nails thick or is there... If their nails are yellow in color, yellow toenails are associated with diabetes. So the other thing, I think, especially for um, the orthopedic um, listeners of of this podcast, is you walk in a room and the patient has a very high arch. You think, well, they have a pescavus deformity or a high arch deformity. But in fact, they have a neuropathy causing a muscular wasting of their intrinsic muscles of the foot, resulting in loss of intrinsic muscles. So the foot looks like it has a high arch. Their toes are clawed, so uh, they're prone to getting callus formation. So you walk in a room and you see a very high arch uh, in perhaps an obese uh, person, and you're saying, oh, uh, does this person have undiagnosed diabetes? Right. So what about sensation? Um, Can you talk a little bit about... uh what we should assess. I know that you called me, you've, you've sent me probably more than a thousand patients in our career. And every diabetic patient that you've sent us, you've called us and said, I just want to let you know this patient's diabetic. I know why, but explain why you think that it's important. We'll talk about sensation a little bit. Diabetic neuropathy or lack of sensation uh, is, is a common uh, complication of diabetes. And there's an excellent book written by an author named uh, Dr. Paul Brand. It's called uh, The Gift of Pain. 
and it's available on Amazon and it's an expensive book, but it, it is a profound book. And in this book, he explains the power of neuropathy or the power of a lack of pain. So I explain to patients, it's like a smoke alarm. Uh, if your smoke alarm isn't uh, working in your house, you don't know that there's a three alarm blaze. You just, uh, you can end up uh, in big trouble. Right. And diabetics who have lack of feeling uh, can end up in, in big problems, with big problems. So when I refer a patient who has diabetes, you often say, well, what's the percentage of those patients that have neuropathy? They may or may not have neuropathy, but you always err on the side of precaution. So the side of precaution says they may be more sensitive uh, to heat packs. They may be more sensitive to other modalities that you want them to do. The other concern is uh, diabetics have decreased ability to fight infection. They have prolonged healing times. And there are certain conditions, and we've talked many times about those conditions, including frozen shoulders. Uh, they have what they call the diabetic gluing effect. So uh, their skin is more rigid. Their muscles are more rigid. Uh, it may take them longer to respond to your physical modalities in physical therapy. Yeah, so we definitely see a prolonged healing process with diabetics. The other thing we do in the PT clinic is that we make sure that if we are doing something like a hot pack on a heel where there isn't a lot of fat and a lot, a lot of muscle to absorb that heat, um, we check, we put extra towels around the foot. We keep checking it constantly to make sure they are not getting burned because if they get a burn, they're going to have a hard time healing from that, develop an infection, and really some long-term problems. Um, so we, we keep an eye on that. The other thing we keep an eye on are um, modalities with direct current. That's a little harder on the skin and can sometimes cause a little uh, surface burn. And so I tend to stay away from uh, direct current stimulation with diabetics, uh, especially around the foot and ankle area. There's a simple test that uh, can be done in the office or in the clinic called a 10-gram monofilament test. And this is a way of evaluating protective sensation. And uh, Dr. Brand did much of the research in regards to uh, the 10-gram monofilament. Um, one of the key points about 10-gram monofilament testing is you should use a uh, certified 10-gram monofilament. Uh, many of the drug companies, uh, and other diabetes associations uh, give away 10-gram monofilaments, but they're not calibrated, and you really don't get an accurate test. So you should use a calibrated 10-gram monofilament. It's an easy test to do, easy test to learn, and it can help you assess whether or not a patient has a lack of protective sensation, so it's at greater risk for some of the things we just talked about. Right, right. Excellent, excellent. That's a very good point. So we want to make sure that when we evaluate our patients, we think about all the complications that can happen with that patient. If they're not diabetic, you know, we might look at joint structure. Maybe if they just recently had surgery, how do we not um, compromise that surgery? And if you can rule out the complications, then it leaves an open field for what you want to do with them. Diabetics, you need to look at that a little differently because there could be many complications along with your treatment. So um, make sure that uh, you take that into consideration. Um, can we talk a little bit about the A1C? What does that mean? What are normal numbers? What are abnormal numbers? And um, you know, how, how does that make a difference when we are evaluating our general patient population for orthopedic problems? It's an excellent question. And 
the hemoglobin A1C has really transformed our ability to care for our diabetics. Uh, the hemoglobin A1C was first uh, established in 1977, but really didn't start to be used widely until the testing became uh, less expensive and more widely available around 1990. Before that time, uh, diabetics would do the following. They'd be really good a couple of weeks prior to their appointment with their physician. The physician would do a lab testing and they would, physician would say, oh, you're doing great. And they'd <laughs> eat an ice cream on the way home and uh, go about their business. Now they can't do that. They can't cheat the test. The test uh, shows your blood sugar average over a three month period. Uh, and it's two to three months, uh, but usually every three months, uh, diabetic could be tested depending on uh, their level of control. Uh, the hemoglobin A1C uh, has a long history of showing us uh, who's at risk for complications. Uh, the bloodstream uh, has blood sugar in it. And the way that the blood sugar gets out of the bloodstream is with insulin. So if you're diabetic and uh, you have a higher rate of, or a higher level of blood sugar in your bloodstream, uh, the red cells are immersed in this. And when you uh, do a hemoglobin A1C, you could have normal levels, uh, which run around uh, 5 to 4.5 to 5.7. Uh, 5.7 to 6.4 is what they call prediabetes, and 6.5 is a diagnosis of diabetes. And there's conversion tables, so we know that uh, blood sugar of uh, hemoglobin A1C of 5 runs around 90. And we know that uh, when you start getting up to 6.5, you're getting up to around 126 or higher. So the patient has diabetes. There was a, there was a trial done uh, in 1983 to 1993. It was a 10-year study of 1,400 diabetics. And it showed it was called the Diabetes uh, Control and Complications Trial. And it showed without any doubt, because there was doubt before then, whether or not good blood sugar control reduced complications. And this test, or this trial showed beyond a doubt that good control of your diabetes uh, results in decreased complications. And that's macrovascular disease and microvascular disease. So we know that heart attack and stroke and uh, losing your eyes, kidneys, and lose an amputation, all can be reduced by controlling your diabetes. For every level of decrease in hemoglobin A1C, so if you go from a hemoglobin A1C from a nine to an eight, you decrease your risk of these complications, uh, macrovascular disease, 12%, and microvascular disease, 30%. Wow, that's and pretty it's, significant. It is very significant, and, it, and it's exponential. So uh, if you go from nine to eight, you reduce your rate of uh, heart attack and stroke by 12%. Go down to uh, eight to seven, you do it another 12%. So we know that uh, diabetics who control uh, their blood sugar have less complications. Somebody asked me about the rate of amputation in diabetics. And we know that number one, 85% of all diabetic uh, amputations are preceded by an ulcer. So I was doing the research for a talk I was giving and came across the, st st the statistic that 
if you have a well-controlled blood sugar, your rate of amputation is zero. So patients who have a blood sugar control of 6.5 or less, the chance of amputation is zero. And this, the chance of kidney disease is decreased. The chance of uh, losing their eyesight is decreased. The chance of having a heart attack and stroke is decreased. In fact, the diabetes, uh, uh, the DCCT, the Diabetes uh, Control and Complications trial was ended a year early because it showed beyond a doubt that uh, good control of the blood sugar significantly decreases these complications. Wow. Wow, that's great. It's powerful. Yep, yep. And so if somebody has full-blown diabetes, their numbers, their A1Cs are right up there. And let's say they have that for a, a prolonged period of time, you know, uh, maybe a couple of years or something like that. It can be reversed. Can it be reversed? Can you exercise right, eat the perfect diet, and bring those numbers down to a, a, a to improve your situation? You can definitely improve your situation. Uh Sometimes uh, the damage is done and it's impossible to reverse. But in general, if you control your diabetes and bring your hemoglobin A1C down from nine to eight, you significantly reduce your risk of heart attack and stroke. Yeah. Uh, no matter how long you've had diabetes, okay. you've significantly reduced your, heart, your chance of heart attack and stroke. I had a diabetic who came in with a severe ulceration on her ankle and foot her hemoglobin A1C was 17. Uh, we had been reading her the riot act and trying to get her to take care of herself. And when she noticed this severe problem that she was having, she really became a monk in regards to her diabetes. And the next time she came and I saw her, uh, her hemoglobin A1C had decreased from 17 to 10, which is wow. unbelievable. Yep. And she said, why am I still having these problems? Uh, and unfortunately, uh, at that point, uh, the damage had been done. And, it, right. and even though she was being good, it was almost impossible to reverse uh, the course of her demise. Right, right. So when you, uh, when you see patients that come in, uh, what is the, here's a weird question. What is the weirdest thing you've ever found in a patient's shoe that they did not know was in their shoe? And second of all, what kinds of things do you tell patients to do as far as inspection of their feet and their shoes and stuff like that? Is there anything in particular that, that could be helpful to those patients to make sure they don't injure themselves and not know about it? Uh, the, fir the first thing, the weirdest thing I've ever seen is a patient came in with a red hot swollen foot, uh, x-ray was taken, and she had 17 insulin needles inside her foot. Oh, ouch. <laughs> so that's beyond what's inside the shoe. She had 17 insulin needles in her foot, uh, which were resulting in her infection. Uh, she was obviously uh, not a well-controlled diabetic who had no feeling in her foot. Uh, the things that we look for, the things that we tell patients to look for are number one, any color change, any change in uh, their skin. So if they notice that they have a scratch on their skin. Uh, so we tell them to, or I ask them to look at the top, the bottom, and in between their toes. If they can't see the bottom of their foot, they can use a mirror to look in the bottom of their foot. Uh, the patients often say, well, I, I don't see that well. A lot of them have diabetic retinopathy, so they don't see well. Uh, they say, oh, I really can't see my foot. And I say, well, is there someone else that can look at your foot for you, at least uh, if not every day, every other day? And the patients often say, 
well, I live alone and I don't want to bother anyone. I said, well, if you ended up in the hospital with a foot infection, would Joe, your next door neighbor, come and see you? And they say, oh, yes, they would come and see me. I said, well, let's save them a trip. Uh, have them look at your foot so we prevent the problem or right. identify a problem before it starts. So visual inspection in between the toes, uh, bottom and top, and they're looking for anything different. If they're looking every day, they know, hey, that redness wasn't there yesterday. That scratch wasn't there yesterday. I should look into this. Right, right. And I always have my patients look at their shoes. I have them flip the shoe upside down, make sure there isn't a nail or a tack or any interesting. We had a staff member who had a tack stuck in the bottom of their shoe, and it was far enough to not bother the toe. But people will have stuff stuck in their shoes. I have them put their hand inside the shoe to make sure there isn't something in there. I found 22 gun shell casings in people's shoes, and they didn't know about it. A very, very large earring with a chain one time. And this lady said, I've been looking for that for three weeks. And it was embedded in the bottom of her foot between her toes and in her in her foot. Um, and so, they, you know, they, these things are real and they happen. And it seems to me that diabetics seem to have some issue with compliance. And uh, they just tend to not do that. So we have to encourage them. And they may go see you, the podiatrist, you know, once a month or once every three months or six months. But if they come in and see their primary care provider or their physical therapist, you know, maybe a physical therapist three times a week for so many weeks, that's a great time for us to become educators and to really help decrease the risk of injuring themselves. So those couple little pieces of, you know, tidbits can be really helpful to that patient. Oftentimes patient wants to come in and say, uh, I just had my general physical. Uh, I said, well, how did you do? Uh, fine. And I take off their shoes and socks and find uh, an infection. So, uh, Unfortunately, in medicine today, we're often pressed for time. But yes, a thorough inspection of the foot should be done on every exam. Uh, patient comes into the physical therapist uh, for a knee, uh, take off the shoe and sock, uh, check their foot if they're diabetic. Yeah. Great. So that's going to conclude the first part of our show today. We're going to take just a really short break uh, to hear a word from our sponsors. And I uh, hope you'll stick with us and we'll be right back. Thanks. Did you know that over 90% of foot and ankle problems are caused by a tight calf muscle? Introducing the Easy Slant, a durable, adjustable, and portable calf stretching device. The Easy Slant was designed to increase stretching compliance and get you back on your feet and feeling better faster. So if you work with patients seeking to ease or avoid foot pain or clients who want to improve their athletic performance, look no further. Visit easyslant.com to learn more or order yours today. Enter coupon code OEP for a 10% discount on your first Easy Slant. Welcome back and thanks for being with us today. And uh, here again, we have uh, Dr. Larry Crystal and um, a great friend of mine who has been uh, always there for me. He's always been totally accessible and uh, for questions. Uh, because obviously I don't have all the answers. I do a lot of orthopedic stuff. Um, Dr. Crystal has a lot of foot and ankle knowledge, and uh, especially in the realm of diabetes. Uh, and um, and so some more questions for Dr. Crystal. Um, let's talk a little bit about diabetic neuropathy. How does How is that just different from diabetes? Um, how do you recognize it? And, um, you know, why should we be so alarmed with diabetic neuropathy? Diabetic neuropathy is not well understood as far as the causes of the neuropathy itself. But diabetic neuropathy is what they call a metabolic neuropathy. 
uh, thyroid problems can cause neuropathy. Uh, vitamin deficiencies can cause neuropathy. Alcoholism can cause neuropathy. And these type of neuropathies are what we call uh, bilateral symmetrical neuropathies. Uh, so if a patient comes in and they're talking and they're diabetic and they're talking about just having uh, numbness and tingling on one foot or numbness and tingling in just one hand, uh, chances are they may not have a diabetic neuropathy. They may have a neuropathy from another cause. Okay. So, so if it's bilateral, you need to be thinking in the realm of neuropathy. It's that, not going to be typically unilateral. Typically, uh, <clears throat> your diabetic neuropathy being a metabolic neuropathy is bilateral and equal. So if you do your reflexes, chances are they're going to have diminished reflexes of the Achilles tendon patella on both sides. Uh, if you do your uh, vibratory sensation, they're going to have decreased vibratory sensation equally in both first MPJ and at the ankle. So yeah. it's usually bilateral and equal. It doesn't always have to be, but that's a usual situation. And, and, and neuropathic pain is very, very difficult to treat. You know, it's very hard to control that type of discomfort. Um, just from experience, one of the things that I have done to help treat patients who may come in with an orthopedic issue but may also have neuropathy is desensitization. Uh, we've taken different tissues, different uh, textures, rubbed it on the area, and we have those patients do that often. And I've actually received phone calls from patients saying, I am so glad you gave this instruction to my provider and, and they gave those instructions to me. I'm having significantly less pain during the day. So they become desensitized to that discomfort. And I know there are medications out there that can help to decrease that. But desensitization is something that's active, inexpensive. Um, you could do it yourself whenever you need it. And uh, we've had some really good results with mm -hmm. decreasing neuropathic pain in the lower extremity by just doing desensitization techniques. Well, it's a common problem. <clears throat> and there are many, many ways of uh, treating it on the market, unfortunately. Uh, none work really well. Right. Yeah. Right. I want to talk about something. Now, um, I want all of you out there to just kind of think uh, kind of three-dimensionally, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts because I can't show you pictures of this stuff. Um, when I look at the bottom of the foot, I look at calluses. I think that reading, and I just did a, I just did a, um, a YouTube video about reading an orthotic and reading a shoe. What does that shoe structure look like? What does the insole in the shoe look like? And what does the callus pattern look like? Now, I've done a lot of research about gastroxoleus stretching and decreasing calluses and decreasing pressure in the plantar fascia and in the metatarsals. And, uh, and the reason I've done this is because we developed this product called the Easy Slant. Uh, so we do a lot of stretching on tight people. Now, let, can you talk a little bit about what forms a callus? And when does callus color or or something underlying in the callus, when should that be alarming to us to a point where we need to contact uh, a podiatrist or somebody like yourself to, or a wound care specialist and say, something is looking funny here, you know, what's going on? Uh, calluses are the skin's response to pressure. And due to neuropathy, um, the skin may not know that it's having pressure. Uh, so that uh, alarm that would go off if you had pain isn't there. You might start limping if you have a painful callus, but if you don't know it's painful, um, the callus just keeps forming, gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And what it does is uh, forces the blood supply out of the area. 
or you actually get hemorrhage into the area. So any color change in a callus formation, callus is usually a yellowish discoloration. Any color change uh, looks like brown, looks like dried blood in the callus is a really early warning sign of a developing ulceration. The other thing that can't be minimized is the increased heat in the area due to friction, uh, which results in even more pressure and more callus formation. Uh, the skin is also due to neuropathy. And let's talk a little bit about neuropathy. There's three kinds of neuropathy that affects the diabetic, and that's why it's called polyneuropathy. There is autonomic neuropathy, so they have decreased sweating, so their skin dries out more, so callus is more easily formed. They have muscular neuropathy, so they develop deformities resulting in uh, toes contracting, uh, metatarsal heads going down, so you get more plantar pressure. And they have sensory neuropathy, so they may have a lack of uh, their warning sign of pain in that callus. So the callus just keeps building up and building up. And if you get enough pressure, you get blood supply removed from the area and you develop what we call an ulcer or a hole in the foot. Right, right. So I've, I've read some recent research that shows a significant decrease in forefoot ulceration on the plantar surface of the foot when patients have a very tight gastroxoleus complex. And what they've been doing is a release of the Achilles and or musculotendinous junction and a significant decrease in ulceration. What are your thoughts about doing more regular gastroxoleus stretching, maybe in the pre-diabetic before they become too stiff and quote unquote, you know, gummy or uh, their, their tendons become, you know, stiffened up like you would see in that, uh, you know, frozen shoulder type of person? Yes. Uh, stretching, no doubt, uh, can, can be a certain uh, um, wonderful modality to decrease forefoot pressure. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as we know, uh, compliance is always an issue. So we, we try to get our patients to do stretching on a regular basis uh, to decrease forefoot pressure. Unfortunately, uh, we reserve uh, the release of the Achilles tendon uh, to those severe situations where nothing else is working. Uh, so can we reduce enough of the forefoot pressure? As we've seen on many patients, yes, you can. You can put the patient in an extra depth shoe with a custom-made orthotic to decrease forefoot pressure, and you can get them to uh, encourage them to, beg them to uh, do their stretching uh, to relieve forefoot pressure. Uh, 85% of all lower limb diabetic-related amputations start with an ulcer. So if we can prevent the ulcer formation, we, present, we prevent the amputation. Right. right. Uh, the other, uh, let's get back to hemoglobin A1C. And we know that patients who have a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 or less, the, re the risk of having a diabetic-related amputation is almost zero. And when they get to six or less, it is zero. Uh, so controlling their diabetes is the most important thing uh, in regards to reducing uh, cows formation and uh, the chance of amputation. Right, right. All right. Thank you. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the Charcot foot. Now, this is a beast that many people miss at first. Um, is it in, Number one, what does the Charcot foot present like? What is it? And is it important for us to recognize that a person is getting it early on? Can we make a difference? Or is this something that is just going to ultimately progressively get worse uh, and be the demise of the patient? 
That's a great question. Uh, Charcot foot occurs in about one in 700 of diabetics. Uh, so it's fairly common and often missed. Uh, it can present in two ways. It can present as the acute Charcot foot, um, where the foot is red, hot, swollen. You walk in the room and you say, this patient has an infection, and they often get admitted to the hospital with a misdiagnosis of an infection when, in fact, they have an acute Charcot foot. More commonly, uh, the Charcot is an insidious uh, beast, and a beast is a really good term for a Charcot foot because it can prevent, present in, in many ways, but usually there's some swelling of the foot. So if, if a patient has diabetes, they're not that well controlled, and they have neuropathy. You have to have neuropathy 99.9% .9 of the time to develop a Charcot foot. And in fact, a Charcot foot was first uh, diagnosed in patients with syphilis, which is an infectious cause of neuropathy. So uh, you have to have some neuropathy. And what happens is, they believe what happens is, no one knows for sure, but having the neuropathy results in uh, the loss of the joint realizing where it's at in time and space. The joint gets more and more pressure and you get multiple fractures that occur over time uh, resulting in what we call the Charcot foot, which is defined as a bag of bones. Uh, it's quite dramatic when a patient walks in with a Charcot that they've had for months that's been untreated. It's a swollen foot, you take an x-ray, and it just looks like mush. Uh, the bones just are all over the place. The, pro the sad part is that it, if caught early, it can be easily treated, uh, not easy for the patient, but easy, easily treated in terms of uh, being placed in uh, what we call a crow walker, which takes the pressure off the foot. Uh, Initially, we might have the patient have a, a period of non-weight bearing and then be placed in a crow walker. But if they're placed in a crow walker and it's caught early, uh, three months later, later, the Charcot foot is stabilized and uh, they can often have an excellent result. Uh, we've had many, many patients walking around with a Charcot foot with uh, really no problems other than the fact that they have a Charcot foot. Right. The problem is uh, the lack of early diagnosis. So if a patient walks in, they have diabetes and they have a swelling, uh, they might have been referred to PT for evaluation of an ankle sprain or a foot sprain, uh, and they have neuropathy, you should always be suspicious that, hey, this could be an early Charcot foot. Yeah, I find that they look just like somebody who has torn their posterior tib tendon. They, the medial exactly. arch, the medial arch collapses, exactly. that navicular sticking out. Um, they kind of have this rounded bottom uh, foot, almost like a rocker bottom shoe. Uh, and so they're bearing more weight on that navicular. They look like they, they have a posterior tip, you know, uh, rupture or failure. Yeah, they often have a callus underneath the cuboid or the navicular. And you're right, it's the midfoot area that collapses. Uh, why? We really don't know. Right, right. All right. Great. Thank you. That's that, I think that's a very important one to yeah. recognize. Not something we see very often, but when you can recognize it early, I think you can make a difference in a person's Definitely. life. Um, so I, I want to talk about something that may drift a little bit off of orthopedics right now. And I know this is orthovalpel, but I think that, you know, I, I want to talk about communication and collaboration. And, you know, we've been working together for 26 years. 
working on a lot of foot and ankle problems. And even, you know, we work in close proximity, like just down the sidewalk, uh, Dr. Crystal had a clinic and, you know, periodically he'd call me and say, Paul, I've got this patient with heel pain, but I'm not convinced it's plantar fasciitis. I'm not convinced it's a stress fracture. I'm wondering if there's some sort of radiculopathy going on. And if I was between patients or something, I would run up to his office, check that patient out, make a diagnosis, and then we would start treatment on this patient. Or, um, you know, if the patient isn't getting better in a reasonable amount of time, um, we would communicate with each other and say, you know what, this is this is a plantar fasciitis. We, we, we both thought it was a plantar fasciitis. The patient's not improving at all in a three-week period with all of the things that we have done with great success in the past, you know, is it something else? Is it, you know, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it looks like a duck, but it smells like a skunk. You know, what else could be going on? So we, we've never let patients linger on too long. We've communicated a lot, spoken a lot on the phone. And I have to be honest with you, um, the success rate of our patients who have had orthopedic foot and ankle problems has been significantly higher than treating any other orthopedic problem. And I attribute most of that to our communication. Um, so, and, and I mean, you would also come down to my office if I was seeing a patient for a foot problem and, uh, you know, somebody had a funky looking toe or something like that. And I'm not very familiar with, you know, how to deal with that. You would come over to the office and, and check that out. So, I mean, what do you, what kind of input do you have in regards to the importance of all providers, you know, being working like a team? I think it starts with the patient in the room. Uh, when I wanted to make a physical therapy re referral, I didn't tell my nurse, go make a physical therapy referral, or I put it in the computer and make a physical therapy referral. Every time I made a physical therapy referral, whether to your uh, clinic, to you, or to one of your other therapists, I would call the therapist directly. Just speed dial, hey, Paul, uh, I'm sending you this patient. I think the patient has uh, plantar fasciitis. It's a little bit of an unusual presentation. If you think something else is going on, please call me and tell me. Uh, I, I've been known to make mistakes for sure. I've been made uh, misdiagnoses. Uh, and that's benefiting the patient. If the patient wants a second opinion, uh, great, go get a second opinion. Uh, the more communication we have, the better. It starts though with the patient and the provider uh, when I hang up from calling the physical therapist, patient goes, wow, uh, that was great. You call the therapist, he knows or she knows exactly what you want me want uh, to be done in therapy. And there's no lack of communication. Uh, sometimes I'd even make the appointment for the patient while they're right there. Uh, is Thursday good for you? Sure. Okay, we'll start your therapy on Thursday. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do is uh, be beneficial to our patients. And there's no question that uh, great communication uh, results in better diagnoses. And, and it, I think practitioners have to understand that uh, auxiliary personnel, uh, just because they don't have a doctor in front of their name, doesn't mean that they don't have a great idea and a better idea of what might be wrong with the patient uh, than the practitioner. Uh, it's no, no problem for me to say, oh, I was wrong. Great. Let's get the patient on the right track. Right, right. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and I think that's so important because I, number one, the power positive thing, if that patient feels comfortable and confident that they're going to get good care exactly. and you give it to them and you deliver, they will get better. Um, and you may not have all the answers. You may not have the perfect treatment. Um, but recognizing that something is wrong is super important. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the communication is, is key. Uh, especially when dealing with the diabetic foot because so many things can happen and so many things can happen so quickly. Yes, no question. Uh, I, we we treated many heel patients to get there. Uh, and I go to the heel pain patient. If you were 80% better than you are today, heel pain is one of those conditions. It's hard to get 100%. If you're 80% better than you are today, uh, would you be here today? And I go, no, if I was 80% better, I, w- I wouldn't be here. I go, if you follow what we're trying to do, chances are you're going to get 80% better in six weeks. Great. Uh, and they understand that if they do exactly what we tell them, uh, exactly what we ask of them, chances are they're going to get better than they do it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about orthotics? Is that something that, I mean, you used to do a lot of orthotics. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Now I do a lot of orthotics. Um, talk to me about, the, you know, the importance of an orthotic when treating the diabetic patient. Yes, I used to do a lot of orthotics. Uh, more and more, I think that uh, practitioners are utilizing uh, outside uh, vendors for orthotics, especially with the advent of uh, computerization of the foot. Uh, we can take measurements, send it on the computer and get an orthotic made, uh, even avoiding uh, making a plaster cast sometimes. So uh, the technology's changed. Uh, the materials we used have changed. And in regards to uh, the diabetic, uh, they may or may not need custom-made orthotics. Uh, there's materials that are beneficial to offloading uh, pressure areas. And those technologies have changed in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, we have much better materials than we used to. So orthotics are uh, ever-changing field. And I think that uh, the reason I stopped making them is because I couldn't make them as well as the outside vendors. And the outside vendors uh, did a better job with better materials. Yeah, and reimbursement on orthotics is really not great. Um, but I think that in treating the diabetic patient, you know, using materials that are low friction, especially if they're that type of person who has a tight calf and maybe they're heel whipping a little bit and they're causing callus and a lot of breakdown, um, you know, uh, getting those calluses trimmed down so that they don't act as pebbles underneath your foot, uh, is important Then a good orthotic with, you know, the proper support the proper offloads where you're getting high pressure areas is important and um, you're using low friction materials to decrease stress and and decrease that skin breakdown is important. Uh, No question. Uh, When we examine a diabetic and they have an increased uh, area of heat, um, which means possibly increased friction, increased pressure, we definitely want an orthotic uh, to try to offload that area. And again, the shoes and and, and materials are significantly better in the last few years and more widely available. 
All right. Yeah. Great. Um, Dr. Crystal, do you have any other, anything else you want to bring up while we're on this podcast today in regards to diabetic foot, orthopedics, um, you know, anything like that? I think that you mentioned collaboration and there's no question that uh, providers working together is beneficial to uh, the patient. And that can't be stressed enough. Uh, it's just amazing when we're working as a team, including the patient and physical therapist, practitioner, uh, podiatrist, physician. Uh, it's beneficial to, uh, to patient care. And that's really what we're talking about. How, how do we help people uh, maintain their health? How do we help people get better from a condition they have? How do we help people prevent uh, complications? Yeah, yeah. And that's really why I developed this yeah. whole podcast series is because we want to give little tidbits of information like we did today. And uh, we could do an eight-hour lecture on the foot and ankle. I could probably do, I could probably lecture a week on the foot and ankle. But we want to give you some some real meat and potatoes information, um, pearls of, uh, of info that can really help you manage your patients better, more expeditiously, with more confidence. And so... Dr. Crystal, I would love to thank you again for being on my show. I really appreciate everything you've done for me over the last 26 years. It's mutual um, It mutual. has been a great, great working relationship. We've taken care of and helped a lot of people get better. And um, I really appreciate all your time and, and, and effort with uh, with helping the community and, and doing all that stuff. Thank you, Paul. Thank you uh, for what you do. Uh, so. If there's anything that... Uh, people get out of this podcast, uh, I'll leave with this tidbit. Uh, to really understand the power of neuropathy, read Dr. Paul Brand's book. It is a transformational book in regards to helping patients, uh, not only with neuropathy, but with conditions in general. He was an amazing man. And much of what we know today about preventing uh, diabetic foot complications from, comes from the work of Dr. Paul Brand. Yeah. Read his book. Yeah, great. So thank you all for listening. I really appreciate your time. Um, make sure that you uh, take some time to go over to iTunes. Give us a rating and review because that would be really helpful uh, for our standings in iTunes. If uh, Please uh, look at the show notes. We'll have Dr. Prant's book uh, linked into the show notes. And um, we will also, please make sure that you check our growing uh, YouTube channel. We have more patients with diagnoses and actual diagnoses and evaluations of those patients than we've ever had. And that's growing beautifully right now. We're going to be uh, going into different topics and uh, really have a lot of content for upcoming uh, lectures and, uh, and for um, podcasts. So please feel free to check that all out. Send comments, get in touch with us. If you want to have, uh, you want to be the first to listen to our podcast on Tuesdays when they come out, go to um, orthoevalpal.com. Sign up on our Get in Touch page. We'll put you on our uh, mailing list, and uh, we'll send that to you as soon as they are done. So, again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, my name is Paul Marquis from Orthway Valpal, and um, have a great day. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.